We are going to be going on a pretty cool adventure over the next few weeks. I got to tell you, um, this is a series that I've been wanting to do for some time. It's a series that we're calling Reason. Uh, it's the whole idea of, is Christianity, a Christian worldview, a reasonable faith? Do we have a reasonable, rational faith? Now, there's a lot of debate over that over the years. There are many people, uh, Kierkegaard, for example, great philosopher, he's one of these people who says, no, faith doesn't need to be rational. Where that can be true sometimes, I do believe that we are given ample reason to believe that we have evidence that leads us to some fantastic conclusions in the Christian faith. People have been asking questions about God uh, for as long as they've had the ability. There's always been questions about God. And uh, in our world today, we have such a strong desire for uh, searching for meaning and answers that people have in life. There's constant. If you go into uh, your Google search or if you go onto YouTube, for example, and you start in the Google search bar, for example, and you just start typing up a question, it immediately begins to fill in some of the blanks. Have you ever noticed that? That is because that is the most common searches that people are doing. So if you were to go into Google and you would type in, does God, or into YouTube and type in, does God, it begins to fill in all kinds of things that people are searching for. There's been constantly a search for meaning. And I believe that there are questions that people are asking that Christianity is uniquely equipped to answer. So here's what we're going to do. For four weeks, we're going to be looking into some pretty foundational questions that people ask, and the desire is that we want to equip people to be able to defend the Christian faith. That's what we're wanting to do. We want to be able to defend the Christian faith as best we can on a Sunday morning, knowing that many of the things that we're going to be talking about, a person can go way, way deeper into. So here's what we got for you for resources. If you go to pathwaycc.net, on your phones, you can download all the notes for today's message with all the details, Bible references, all that kind of stuff. You can have that today. But what you also need to know is that for this entire series, there's a document that you're going to have by the end of the series that's going to answer all of these questions for you. And on top of that, we have an account for every single person in the congregation on Right Now Media. Right Now Media is sort of a Christian version of Netflix as it relates to Bible studies. So if you imagine Netflix, imagine all of that being Bible studies. We have that for every single person. And this morning, I put on there, on our particular channel, I put on there, uh, I believe it was three or four actual studies that you can take these kinds of topics deeper and grow even more than what we're able to give you on a Sunday morning. So I would encourage you to dive deeper into that. But we're going to be talking about four basic core tenets of the Christian faith, including, like this morning, we're talking about the existence of God. Does God exist? That's a big question. If you're going to be talking about defending the Christian faith, you've got to be able to defend whether or not God exists. Makes sense, doesn't it? How about this one? It's something called the problem of evil. How many of you have heard that term before, the problem of evil? Some of you may not. It's a theological term, actually, and it's really wrestling with the question, if God is good... You guys know the rest of the part of the question? Then, why is there so much evil in the world today? So we're going to be wrestling with that one. Uh, is the Bible trustworthy? Can we trust it? That's a huge debate right now. As a matter of fact, right now, there is a massive effort to disqualify the claims of the eyewitnesses of the text. Do you know why? Because if you can disqualify the claims of the eyewitness accounts of the text, you no longer have the Gospels. What is Christianity without the Gospels? Nothing. So, is the text trustworthy? And lastly, and most importantly, did Jesus rise from the dead? We're ending on that one. Pastor Andrew is going to be speaking on that one, and I'm looking forward to how he's handling that. But did Jesus rise from 
from the dead? These are important questions that people have, and there's way more questions. We all know that that people have that we got to be able to give answer to. But what we're going to focus on is these four, because these are the, some of the biggest ones that people ask. We're going to give you some tools to be able to work with it. But also, for anybody who's here or anybody who's checking things out online, you're going to be able to wrestle with this in a real, authentic way. Now, here's something you need to know about me. I have a bias. Anybody have any idea what that bias might be? <laughs> I'm a Christian, and I have to recognize that I bring something to the table in this conversation where I'm trying to prove my belief to be true. That makes sense. So what you need to know about me in my own personal journey in faith is that almost every year, almost every year, I study and answer the question for myself, why do I believe what I believe is true? And I challenge it. And I actually personally try to rip Christianity apart. Now, either I suck at ripping it apart, <laughs> or there's something in there that compels me to it. And my hope and prayer is that through this, this particular study that we're going to have, is that you will be compelled towards it. Now, to that end, Paul has this incredible encounter, encounter in the book of Acts that I want us to turn to because we're going to be walking through it because Paul deals with the exact same kind of people we deal with today. And these are not necessarily bad people, but these are people who think a lot. These are people who ask a lot of questions, and they're really committed to learning and hearing new ideas. Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17, we're going to be looking at verses 16 to 34. Acts chapter 17, 16 to 34, if you do not know where the book of Acts is, in the beginning of your Bible, there's a table of contents. People worked really hard to put it there. Don't be ashamed to use it. Acts chapter 17, verse 16 to 34, for this morning, I'm going to be reading verses 22 and 23, just to give us a bit of a picture of some of the dialogue that was taking place. One of the ways we show respect here for God's Word at Pathway is we like to stand for the reading of His Word, so would you please stand with me when you have it? Acts chapter 17, we're going to be, uh, again, studying 16 to 34, but specifically we're going to be reading verse 22 to 23. Here's what it says. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Arapagus, ah, and he said, now the Arapagus is a, is a group of philosophers in Athens and Greece at the time, they were some of the best minds that were collected together. And so he says to them, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. Now, I'm going to park there just for a quick moment. Being very religious in this context is not the idea that they were people of faith. It was the idea that as Paul was walking through and going along Mars Hill, he came across statues to all kinds of gods. And so these were people that were willing to deal with all kinds of philosophies and say, all of this is good, all of this is great, except the ones that would claim any absolutes. They even had a statue to the unknown God, as we read, but he carries on and he says, so people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walk around and look carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. Let's pray together. Lord God, I thank you so much for this morning. I thank you that you have given us everything we need to know you. And so, Lord, as we're walking through your word this morning, as we're talking about how you've created our minds to be able to be in tune with you, and to have a sense of who you are at our inmost being. I pray, Jesus, that the information that we're talking about this morning does not just become information, but becomes life-giving understanding and truth so that we draw closer to you with more confidence and we draw others to you as well. In your name I pray. Amen. You can have a seat. So, Scientists, not just scientists, but pretty much everybody on the planet, believes and we're convinced that the universe began with one enormous explosion of energy and light. And we now call the Big Bang. You guys ever heard of this before? Yeah? Some of you are like, yeah, yeah, I've heard of this. Okay. We now call it the Big Bang. 
And this was a singular start to everything that exists, the beginning of the universe, the start of space, the, even the initial start of time itself. There's a guy who was an astrophysicist. His name was Robert Jastrow. He was a self-described agnostic, which means he's unsure as to whether or not there is a God. He says there's too much ambiguity, too many questions surrounding that. So I'm not sure that there actually is a God, he says. And then he states this. He says, the seed of everything that happened in the universe was planted in that first instant. Every star, every planet, every living creature in the universe came into being as a result of the events that were set in motion in the moment of the cosmic explosion. The universe flashed into being, now listen to this, and we cannot find out what caused that to happen. Isn't that interesting? We cannot find out what caused that to happen. Steven Weinberg, he was a Nobel laureate in physics. He said, the moment of this explosion, the universe was about, I don't even know how you say this is about, because this is a, this is a temperature that I can't even fathom, but he says it was a hundred thousands, millions degrees centigrade. So I take that to mean it'll melt my face off. And then he says this, and the universe was filled with light. The universe was filled with light. The basic premise here is this, that all of science agrees that the universe did not always exist. That's not an argumentative point. Nobody disagrees with that. Everyone agrees that the universe did not always exist. Now, it used to be that there was a theory that the universe was eternal, but that got discredited somewhere in the mid to late 70s very definitively through a variety of different kinds of theorems that came out, and so everyone agrees within the scientific world that the universe did not exist eternally, that it had a starting place. But they have no explanation for that sudden explosion of light and matter. No explanation. And so they're trying to find an explanation. And here's what I mean. Have you heard of something called the God particle? Some of you who are into this kind of stuff, maybe you've heard of the God particle. I thought this was the coolest thing. Uh, just the coolest thing. In February 2009, there was a group of scientists that gathered in Chicago's uh, Fermilab to conduct experiments to discover what they called the God particle. Now, this God particle actually has another name. The other name is the Higgs boson. Maybe you've heard of that. Maybe you haven't. But physicists believe that the God particle is this very special subatomic particle that allows all other particles in the universe to bond together and have a mass. So it's essentially the glue that keeps everything together. In short, they're searching for the matter that keeps all other matter from becoming antimatter. I know, don't worry, you got notes. All the atoms consist of protons and electrons and neutrons. I know, some of you are like, Rob, I go to school all week. I do not need to hear this right now. Trust me, it gets awesome. Now, beyond that, there are 17 subatomic particles that have been discovered. There are six that are uncharged leptons, six charged quarks, and five force-carrying bosons. And the belief is, is that by smashing these particles together, now this to me seems like a mental picture in my head is like toddlers. Like my brother and I, we used to, before Lego came out with kits, we just had boxes of Lego that had the wheels, and you had to create your own thing. So we always tried to create the absolute best smash-up derby Lego vehicle, really because we loved the destruction of things. And so we would build things, and then the goal was to, once we were finished building it, we would launch it at each other to smash it up. That's the picture I have of these guys. These scientists, they're so pumped, they're so excited, they got these particles, and they just want to smash them up. And they believe that by this collision taking place, that they're able to replicate the Big Bang. That's the idea. They want to replicate the Big Bang. And they theorize, they theorize that this God particle 
after this big bang, is going to bring all these things to congeal together. It's the result. But here's what they also say. They admit that if they prove that this Higgs boson, this God particle, doesn't exist, they'll have to create a new theory as to why atoms stick together. Isn't that interesting? Spokesperson for Fermilab, he's a physicist, he assessed their progress with this ongoing conversation he had with his mom. Conversation went like this. He says, have you found God yet? This is his mom. And then he says, well, no. So his mom responds, well, maybe you're looking in the wrong place. Look, ultimately, many have yet to find God. We know that. The simple desire of the scientific community, for example, to advance knowledge in such a direction that they could find the origin of all things, a theory to explain all things, is actually an altruistic goal. It's not a negative goal. I actually believe that it's a goal that will ultimately and only lead to either God or further confusion. That's it. I believe it would either lead to God or further confusion. And some people are even unsure as to whether or not God is uh, out there to even be found, right? So there are those who have yet to find Him. There are those who are unsure if He's even yet there to be found. And then, of course, we understand that that's not a new development. Paul, the Apostle Paul, encountered the same confusion and uncertainty when he walked among the idols at Mars Hill in Athens. He walks across this hill and he passes this vacant altar that we know he says the inscription on it in verse 23 of chapter 17, to the unknown God. And that moment illustrates the question or the quest to answer the question, does God exist? So let's wrestle with that. Does God exist? It's a rough question for people to wrestle with. Some people will say no. In short, like really, there's only three possible answers to this question. The first answer is as what we would label as the atheist, right? It's, it's this notion that they're a belief that, that there isn't a God. They would say no. They consider all concepts of God to be just human inventions. Well, Paul defines that and identifies that, and all of Scripture identifies that as idols. In verse 17... Oh, sorry, chapter 17, verse 16, he says, While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see, listen, that the city was so full of idols. And then in verse 29, Paul later says, he says, Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. Listen, there is no question whether or not the Athenian world understood that man created a God. There's no question. They understood that when you fashion together an idol and you begin to worship it, you made it. There's no surprise to them there. And so when we have in our world today this belief that some people impose on Christians saying that you just created your own God and you're worshiping Him is exactly the same kind of thing that Paul would have experienced in Athens. And Paul says, he contrasts the true God against anything that is conceived or created by man. That's what he does with them. He says, listen, I get what you're saying. All these things that are created, they're man-made constructs, and that's over there. But he, they don't have an idol for God. There isn't one. And so he's comparing and contrasting these things for them. So one of the things is that atheists would say, no, there is no God in anything that you're doing. That's just man-made creation. Okay, that's one belief that people could choose to believe. Another one would be what you would call the agnostic. The agnostic says, hmm, I don't know, maybe, don't care, maybe. And this is really reflected in two groups of people that Paul encounters 
in, uh, in verse 18. Verse 18, he says, a group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him, and some asked, what is this blabber trying to say? And others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods, and they said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Now, the Epicureans and the Stoics were two lines of philosophy in the day. Tell me if this sounds familiar to you. These two philosophies believe that if, God, if a god or gods exist, that these deities were impersonal, that you couldn't know them, and they were removed from all human experience. Humans, according to them, could not know the gods, and the gods were not overly concerned with humans. And Paul enters into that conversation and begins to say, hang on a second, A, there is a god, B, he's knowable, and C, he loved you so much that he died and rose again and sits at the right hand of the Father and will come back. And so Paul's wrestling with all the similar kinds of questions that we wrestle with. There might be people, there are people in our world today that say, yeah, you know what, there probably is a God. And if there is one, he probably just doesn't care about us. Well, why not? Well, because look at all the stuff that's going around in the world today. If he actually cared about us, he'd do something. We call that the problem of evil. We'll talk about that next week. So come back. We'll talk about that next week. But that was the Epicureans and the Stoics. These are the agnostics in the story. And then you, of course, have the advocate that says yes. In Acts 17, 17, it tells us that Paul reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as the market day by day with those who happened to be there. He reasoned with them. You catch that? Reasoned. That is a very particular word that suggests that Paul was using a realm of logic with people so that they would come to understand the gospel message as he was proclaiming it to them. Paul declared with authority and certainty that God is real and that He has invaded the human existence to redeem fallen humanity by His Son, Jesus. And you might wonder, was this just this academic pursuit? I mean, you would almost think so if you look at these incredible minds that we're meeting. In verse 21, it says, all the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and listening to the latest idea. It's like a TED talk. Don't get me wrong, there's some great stuff on TED talks. But it's the idea that people are just getting together and they're just talking and they're just listening to the greatest ideas and the newest ideas, but with no absolutes. And the evidence of no absolutes is the plethora of stonework that symbolized all the gods that they would talk about. Is it just an academic experience? I believe for those who were in the era pagus, that's a hard word to say, I'm just telling you. That those who were sitting in amongst this group were there to listen, to debate, and to hear the newest ideas. But nothing changed. No idea was so compelling that it required a shift until Paul. Because Paul comes and he says, so you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, this unknown God that I am about to explain to you. You are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. And he begins with a reasoning. He says that God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he enters into this reasoning, this rational argument for the faith. So is it just an academic exercise? I certainly hope not. Because I do think it's important that we understand why we believe and that we can back up our belief systems. But what difference does one's view of God really matter could be a question that comes up. But one of the things I want us to understand is that belief has consequences. 
Belief absolutely has consequences. In Acts chapter 17, verse 30 to 31, I know we're jumping around this passage, but track with me. Verse 30 and 31, it says, In the past, God overlooked such ignorance. So he's pointing back to the ignorance that they had. And he, he says, In the past, God overlooked this ignorance of yours. But now he commands that all people everywhere to repent. He commands that all people everywhere to repent. Ideas have consequences. Francis Schaeffer said, ideas have consequences and no concept or thought has the significance that the existence of God does. What you believe about God has consequences. Here's what I mean. If your picture of God is that He is just angry all the time and He's just out to punish you, is that a God that you would feel connected to personally? Is that a God that would draw you to a place of worship out of affection versus fear? Is it a God that you would believe that is constantly looking out for your good? Is it a God that you would believe that says that nothing can separate you from His love? Is, is that the God that you would understand? No, it isn't. The God that you would understand is this God of fear, and you would live your life in such a way that there would be legalism. If I check all these boxes, I will be good with God, and I hope that in the end that my good outweighs my bad. Which, by the way, you should know, is a very popular Muslim belief about Allah. But the belief is, is that they understand that they're going to do bad in the world, but their hope is that the good that they do will outweigh the bad when they come to the scales in the end. What you believe about God has consequences. Now, on the flip side, if you believe that God is love and His desire is that everybody would be in right relationship with Him so that they can experience that love, then it would stand to reason that the consequence of that the, would draw us to action. And when we express that love to everybody and have everyone come into that love, it makes sense. It makes sense. How we answer that question matters. The answer to the question will affect our understanding of other significant issues as well, from prehistoric times, the idea that God has existed, God has existed in the mind of humanity. Now, perhaps that's because, as the author Bob Hosteller points out, he says, the idea of a supreme being who made the world makes sense. The concept of God is what scientists call highly, a highly convenient hypothesis. I love that. A highly convenient hypothesis, which basically means when we have answers to questions and we say, oh, okay, yeah, God made that. A highly convenient hypothesis. I remember uh, there used to be a television program called Joan of Arcadia many years ago. And in this program, the very first episode of this program, I fell in love with the conversation because I thought it was fantastic. The idea was that there was this teenage girl by the name of Joan, lived in a community called Arcadia, and she was a believer in God. God comes to her in the form of a teenage boy. Huh? There's some creative license. And he's walking along with Joan, and Joan says, okay, if you're God, do a miracle. He says, okay, there's a tree. And she says, yeah, it's just a tree. He says, okay, you make one. <laughs> you fall in love with those kinds of conversations, right? <laughs> Highly convenient hypothesis. But the concept of God fits as if our minds were, they have a feel for God. It, it, it fits as if our minds have a feel for God. And when people reject God, they always substitute something else. Always substitute something else. Maybe that something else is self. And I am the ultimate goal of all things. When people substitute God, maybe they, they substitute God for, well, family. The family becomes the ultimate. Or money becomes the ultimate. Or power becomes the ultimate. Or significance becomes the ultimate. Whatever that thing is that in our lives become the ultimate is the thing that we replace God with. It is the substitute. And what's more, our answer to this question, our belief about God, is that our belief will determine a host of other significant questions, including things like this. Eternity. Is there life after death? 
is there heaven and hell? Now, in verse 17, uh, chapter 17, verse 31, Paul says, For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. And so, is there life after death? Is there heaven and hell? Well, this, Paul is saying in this passage, yeah, there is. God's going to come. Using, like Jesus is going to be here, and Jesus is going to be on the throne, and he is going to be separating people, and we know this from Matthew, the sheep and the goat. It's the judgment seat. Is there life after death? Luke wrote that God has a set day for judgment. So what we believe about God determines what we believe about eternity. If I believe that there is eternity and there's an eternal reward, then I'm going to live my life in accordance to that. If I don't, well, then literally, everyone, understand this. Then it literally is survival of the fittest. And if it's survival of the fittest, then what I do to you does not matter. Because if I can get away with it, I am more fit. If I can win at all costs, that is survival of the fittest. And to that end, if the world truly believes in the survival of the fittest mentality and mantra, then the notion that any ethnic group, any government system that would impose on people or genocide or murder or anything else doesn't matter. Because there is no reason for it to matter. It is survival of the fittest. And so if one conquers the other, all it means is that one was stronger. It is amoral. There is no morality within it. It is amoral. It doesn't make a moral statement. Survival of the fittest. Another question would be this idea of morality. What is right and wrong? Because we know that we do live in a world that believes in right and wrong. People in our world always say genocide is wrong. I agree. Genocide? Don't like it. Think it's a pretty negative thing. Don't want to be on the negative end of that participation. So there are morals that we believe in right and wrong. And Paul said that God commands people to repent in Acts chapter 17, verse 30. He indicated that God has established rules for us to follow. And so in essence, God tells us what behaviors are right and wrong. For example, okay, how many of you believe that lying is wrong? Not everybody put their hand up. That makes me a little nervous. Okay. How many of you believe that road rage, somebody getting out of their vehicle because they're angry at the mistake or perceived mistake another person made, getting out of the vehicle and taking a baseball bat to their headlights, is that right or wrong? How many of you think that's wrong? Yeah, the other half of you, I know your emotional state. <laughs> you feel like it, but you know it's still wrong. Why? What makes it wrong? What governing belief system do we have to determine whether or not it is right or wrong? If it's survival of the fittest, if I can get away, then do it. If this world is simply just about me and what I can achieve, then why not? Why not? Why not steal? What does it matter if I take something from somebody else? Why not have a, an affair? Why not? Why not get into human trafficking? Why not? If there is no sustainable, absolute, moral, objective belief. I'm belief giver, moral giver. Ideas have consequences, and the absence of the knowledge of God has serious consequences. It has very serious consequences. See, here's what I mean. In a, in a biblical worldview, we are able to say that there's a variety of things that we would deem to be wrong on the basis of the fact that we are created in the image of God. You are created in the image of God, and as a result of that, the conclusion that we can draw from that is that you are deserving of respect, honor, and dignity, period, sheerly from the fact that you exist. 
and anything that would treat you opposite of that, biblical worldview would be objectively wrong. Catch that? It'd be wrong. So consider that then when we use our social media, when we have interactions about belief systems or lifestyles that we don't agree with. Consider what it would look like for you to recognize them as an image bearer. We're not saying that what they're doing is okay. We're not saying we agree. But we do not get to degrade and vilify and demonize. We get to love. Why? Because we love because He first loved us, right? And if we're supposed to pattern our lives after Jesus, didn't it say that while we were yet still sinners, Christ died for us? That means we were enemies. And he acted on our behalf prior to our positive response to him. Maybe, just maybe, we need to smarten up a little bit with our biblical worldview. There is a biblical observation that I think is critically important that we remember. Like, especially when somebody asks, is there any proof or why would we even believe in God? There is a, a, a statement I have to make here that's critically important to everyone in the room that tries to use the Bible to prove God. And that's this. You ready? Here it is. The Bible never tries to prove God's existence. It assumes it. In the beginning, God. No explanation. In the beginning, God. And so one of the things we need to remember is that from the very first verse in the Scriptures, God is presented as a reality. He is not attempted to be reasoned towards. He is understood to be. And then we have what we would call, what we would call four extra-biblical Arguments. So these are arguments that we can make for the existence of God outside of the Scriptures. And one of them would be this, the concept of God. It's called the ontological argument. Uh, Paul makes this argument in, in uh, chapter 17, verses 22 to 23. He actually says, uh, when Paul stood up at the meeting of the Arab, uh, yeah, that word, and said, people of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious, for as I walked around and looked very carefully, the objects of worship, I found that and the altar with this inscription to the unknown God, you are so ignorant, so you are ignorant of the very thing that you worship, and this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. The question that comes up is, why do the majority of cultures have a concept of God and morality? How do we account for this inherent knowledge of God? Now, it, this is what I find fascinating. The argument towards this inherent knowledge of God is that, well, the ancient cultures were so primitive that there's no way they, that they were able to explain the world around them, so they reached out to this deity understanding. I said, okay. Yeah, sorry, who were the ones that did the pyramids again? Ancient cultures, being accused of being primitive, primitive still having a concept an understanding of a deity that created all things, and yet they did something that the scientific world today cannot figure out how they did. Who's the idiot? I mean, let's be honest intellectually and rationalize things properly. Some have suggested the vast knowledge of God is due to this God-shaped vacuum in our hearts. The Apostle Paul would say that this is true because God revealed himself to us in Romans chapter 2, verses 18 to 22. So that man is without excuse, that God showed himself to us through the fact that there is creation. I'm going to keep moving because there's a lot. Okay, the origin of matter. It's called the cosmological argument, and, and you see Acts chapter 17, verse 24, where it says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of the heaven and the earth, and he does not live in temples built by human hands. And so this is this cosmological argument. He's answering the question of where did all of this come from? Where did matter come from? And one absolute scientific reality is that everything comes from something. That's the idea. Everything comes from something. Charles Ryrie, great theologian, he writes this, he says, if something now exists, referencing the cosmos, then it either came from nothing or it came from something that pre-existed. 
That's the idea. So it could be maybe clarified like this, cause. Okay, so option one in the cause. Nothing. No cause. Nothing. The effect. The world. Ta-da. Option two. Cause. Something happened. Effect. The world. Ta-da. Which one of those things do you think requires more faith? Which one requires more faith? If we use the observable science as our standard of proof, then we got to conclude that everything we see in the natural world indicates that everything had an antecedent. In other words, everything was made. God is the ultimate something that precedes everything. That's the point. God is the ultimate something that precedes everything. And then you have evidence by design, and this is called the teleological argument, which, by the way, you could park on this for years. But the teleological argument, this is Acts 17, 24, again, um, and it's the idea that the world is filled with complexity, and within that complexity we find incredible order. That logic tells us that order and design in the universe point us to a designer. Ryrie, again, says, random action could never have produced highly integrated organization, which we observe in the world today. Look, take a pack of toothpicks. You bury it in a sandbox. I don't care how many times you throw firecrackers in that sandbox. I don't. You are not building a bridge. That dumbs it down a bit. I get that. But the reality is, is that things don't just randomly come together. Like, nobody, nobody looks at bread and says, wow, that just happened. No, they say that after they see me eat it. <laughs> but nobody looks at something. No, the chairs that you're sitting in, nobody looks at these chairs and say, hey, look at that. That just randomly happened. All of them at the same time in the same place. It makes no sense. What the probability is, or what is the probability that the explosion can create, for example, back to the toothpicks, a toothpick bridge. There's zero probability that that will likely happen. Order does not come from chaos. Random order does not come from chaos. Instead, design points to a designer. And then, of course, we've got what we call the uniqueness of human beings. This is the anthropological argument. This is Acts chapter 17, verse 28 and 29, where it says... For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of, you own, some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we do not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made of human design and skill. We differ from any other creature on the planet. We have intellect. We have moral judgment, we're self-aware, and we have a knowledge of God, even if the knowledge of God is rejected. There's the ability to reject it. How can we honestly explain the difference without acknowledging a God-like being? Consider our moral conscience. Animals have no moral objection to stealing or killing. We do. Like, my dog, after he eats cheese, has no moral objection for what comes out of his backside when he's sitting in front of me. But I do. Because <laughs> that clears a room. i got to tell you guys, like, if you package that and sold it, you're going to mess with people. They have no moral objection to things. But we do. We do. There are philosophical arguments. These are philosophical arguments, but is there any concrete proof that God exists? Is there any concrete proof that the God of the Bible is the real God and, and that Jesus is truly his only son? Absolutely. You see, Paul points us to that, to this indisputable historical evidence. Remember, he's reasoning with people. And he's reasoning with people in the day and age where Jesus would have resurrected and so they would have been able to go and ask questions. Recognize this. These are not foolish people. These are high, highly intelligent people. They would have been able to go and ask all of these different questions that he says in Acts 17.31. 
For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given, listen, he has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. Paul says it's proof. And proof is able to be verified. Proof is able to be verified. The resurrection validates and proves the existence of God is revealed in the Scriptures. And Pastor Andrew is going to be talking about this in, in our week four. But ultimately, Christianity rises and falls on the reality of the resurrection. If the resurrection did not take place, Paul actually says that everything else is a waste of time. In April 2002, a well-respected Oxford University philosopher, a philosophy professor by the name of, this is a great name, Richard Swinburne. It's a fantastic name. He used a broadly accepted probability theory known as Bayes' theorem. Bayes' theorem. To defend the truth about Christ's resurrection. And he did this at an incredibly high-profile gathering of philosophy professors at Yale University. Does that not sound like Paul? Standing with a bunch of philosophers, reasoning. He says, for someone to... For someone dead for 36 hours to come to life again, according to the laws of nature, is, well, extremely, extremely improbable. It's a fair statement. So Swinburne then uses Bayes' theorem to assign values to things like the probability of God being real, to things like Jesus' behavior in his lifetime, the quality of the witness testimony of Jesus. Remember I said earlier that there are people who are trying to discredit the eyewitness accounts? but he factors these eyewitness accounts into it. And then he plugged all these numbers into a probability formula and added everything up. You want to know what the result was? 97% probability of the resurrection. We have a rational faith. If you're wondering where that's taken from, it is in your notes, but it's taken uh, Emily Aiken. Uh, she wrote an article in the New York Times in May 11, 2002. So, God re so God's really in the details is the name of the article. Now, that's a lot of information we just gave you this morning, right? And I know a lot of you got to pick up your kids from Pathway Kids, so I'm just going to move forward here. These are just a few arguments that a person has to re consider regarding the existence of God. And as I think about my days in Bible college, now you have to understand that when I went to Bible college, I'd been a believer for about two and a half years. Maybe crouching on three. And while I was there, I deep-dived into the study of whether or not God existed because I wanted to make sure I didn't make an emotional decision towards God. I wanted to make sure that it wasn't irrational for me to believe in the existence of God. So the intense few-week studies and thought and conversations I had, I came to a place where I just couldn't deny the evidence for the existence of God. Where are you at? Because it matters. What you believe about God has consequences. If God doesn't exist, you don't have to worry about salvation. If God doesn't exist, salvation does not matter. But if He does, then what an incredible act of love towards His creation. If he exists, and I believe he absolutely exists, what an incredible act of love towards his creation. A fool says in his heart, again, they've been dealing with this for a long time. Psalm 53, verse 1. A fool says in his heart, there is no God. A fool. So my hope and prayer this morning is this. Don't be foolish. Let's not be fools. But let us consider all of it. Consider all the information we have. And I assure you that it leads to two conclusions every single time. Either there is a God or there's further confusion. That's it. That's all you got. Because all that science is able to say is that, well, we just don't have the answer to that yet. I'm like, oh, okay. Well, we do. God did it. Remember him? The one that you don't really want to consider? 
Stephen Hawking, in A Brief History of Time, actually says that because we cannot study God, because he's not measurable or any of these other kinds of things in terms of physically, that we start after God, and so they start after the Big Bang than trying to measure anything before the Big Bang. And I'm just saying, hey, look, man, you're a smart dude. You got to know that something happened. And just because you don't like the answer doesn't mean it's wrong. Not liking the answer. The answer not satisfying, satisfying our intellect does not determine whether or not it's the right answer. Truth is not governed by our levels of satisfaction. It's not. I go to the doctor. I go to the doctor usually if, if I'm sick. For me to go to the doctor is because something's really up. And when I go there and they tell me that there's something wrong, I'll be honest with you. I don't like that answer. But my relationship to the answer has no bearing on whether or not it's true. Truth is absolute, not relative. But our relationship to the truth is relative. It is subjective. It is whether or not we choose to accept that truth as true. So, a fool says in his heart, there is no God. Don't be a fool. Let's pray. Lord God, I thank you so much for this morning. And I know, Lord, that we were going through so many things. And I pray, Jesus, that you were honored in what we did here this morning. And I ask, Jesus, that as we continue to consider you, that we recognize that we do not just have this pie-in-the-sky thinking, that actually, Lord, what we have in front of us, as Paul talks about, is proof of your existence, that you actually lived, you actually died, you actually died the death that you claimed that you were going to die. You predicted your own death, and then you did it, and then you rose again, and there were witnesses. And so, Lord Jesus, may we honor the truth that we find in the historical record and, most importantly, in the biblical record. And may we all move towards a biblical worldview where we truly understand our biblical worldview. In your holy and precious name, amen.